0: Before uh, we begin our study of God's Word this morning, I want to take a moment to say uh, that it's good to be back uh, here at Harvest after uh, the uh, six-week sabbatical uh, that my family was able to take. Our family spent most of that time in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, We spent a lot of time uh, resting, uh, reading uh, good books, enjoying each other's company in ways that uh, ordinary circumstances of life uh, don't uh, readily allow us. In, in God's uh, providence, the sabbatical was well-timed. I think it was uh, really uh, beneficial. Uh, I've told people who have asked about the, the sabbatical uh, that one of the things that has struck me about it uh, was just um, an appreciation uh, that God uh, knows what I need as, as one of his children, and a real sense that uh, through this uh, time of rest, uh, he was exercising his, his fatherly care over me and and my family. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful uh, to you as the congregation for supporting uh, us and allowing us to go on sabbatical. I thank you for uh, those of you who prayed for us and and those of you who have expressed uh, interest in our our time away. Uh, So thank you for that. I'm, I'm Likely going to share some more reflections via a pastor's post or two. Uh, and if you've got questions, I'd be happy to answer that, uh, those. Uh, but I'd rather turn my attention this morning to something more interesting, and that's God's Word. So please turn to Exodus uh, 14. And as I uh, considered my preaching assignment uh, for this week, I decided that we would turn our attention to Exodus 14. And this is the, the story of. of the Israelites' Red Sea crossing, their deliverance from from Egypt, or their exodus as as it's called. Uh, One of the reasons for doing that was because of an excellent book that I read uh, while on sabbatical by Michael Morales entitled Exodus Old and New, a Biblical uh, Theology of Redemption. The book was excellent. Um, It's written in a way that's accessible to students and those interested in the church just wanting to learn more about their, their Bibles. And so I... I mention that to commend that book to you, but also uh, to acknowledge my uh, debt to that book as uh, we, we look to this text this morning. Morales, in his book, uh, argues, and I would agree, that the Exodus is massively important, perhaps singularly important, for understanding what the whole Bible and, indeed, all of life is about. So as we come to Exodus 14, we're coming to something uh, that's foundational for understanding the Bible. So if we would understand uh, the whole Bible more clearly, uh, we'll be helped to understand this particular part of the Bible more clearly. And if we can understand the Bible more clearly, we might know God more clearly. And that's that's our aim this morning. So it's going to require some careful thinking. Uh, We're going to uh, go to some different texts, so you're going to want your Bible close at hand. But first, let's read together Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of pi ha between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host.'" And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, and camped at the sea by Pi Ha in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts." his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we turn to these words we see of your glorious triumph over your enemies and we acknowledge that there is no God like our God and so Lord as we see in scripture the recounting of your marvelous deeds so Lord I ask that this sermon would be just one example of that that we do together as a congregation rehearsing your great salvation that we might grow in fear and we might grow in faith. This, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the chapter that we've just read illuminates the message that every person must affirm in order to be a Christian. But it does more than that. This passage also describes for us the experience that each person must undergo if they're to be a Christian. And here's the passage in a nutshell, that God defeats his enemies and he delivers his people into his life-giving presence by bringing his people safely through the waters of death. And we might add that the proper response to such a great deliverance is to fear and to have faith. So God defeats his enemies and he delivers his people into his life-giving presence by bringing them through The waters of death and we're gonna unpack this main point by answering four questions this morning first where were God's people then where were God's people going and how do they get there and how should God's people respond so first where were God's people Well, the first and most straightforward answer to this of course is that God's people were in Egypt if you're not familiar with the Bible a little background might be helpful for you here God had led led Jacob, or Israel as he had been renamed, down into Egypt so that his clan could be delivered from a deadly famine. And they had gone down as a family of 70 people, or what we might refer to as a modest Dutch family, and he brings them down here so that he can deliver them from this famine that had taken hold on the region. And over a span of 430 years, God blesses Jacob and his offspring, he multiplies them so that they become numerous. And we read in Exodus 12 that uh, by the time of our story, there were about 600,000 Israelite men. Well, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh at this time, he saw these people as both a threat and an opportunity. He was both worried that the people might um, um, be a cause of insurrection if there was ever a foreign attack, and so he was worried about that, but he he also saw here in these people an opportunity that he could subjugate them, he could make them his slaves so that they could become part of the economic engine of the Egyptian empire. And that's what he did. And slavery in Egypt was brutal. And under the, the ruthless oppression of the, their Egyptian slave masters, Israel cries out to God, asking for help, asking for deliverance. But, if we might say that um, Israel was in Egypt, we need to say that uh, there's more going on here in this story. Because if we just say that Israel was in Egypt, we're missing an important layer Because when we read the book of Exodus, when we read about Egypt in that book, we're meant not merely to think about a place on a map. Egypt is laden with a much greater symbolic value in the book of Exodus. When we read about Egypt in the book of Exodus, we are meant to think not merely about this place on a map, but we are meant to think about death. Or maybe in a more concrete image, we're meant to think about Egypt like one big watery grave. Now our Bible gives us clues that we're supposed to think this way, that we're supposed to associate Egypt with death. Consider how the book of Exodus tells the story of Israel's time in Egypt. What does it begin with? It begins with this deadly state-sponsored massacre of the Israelite boys in the waters of the Nile River. And how does their time in Egypt end? Well, the narrative in Egypt ends by a deadly departure through the waters of the Red Sea. So the story begins and ends with two deadly bodies of water. The Nile River consumes the sons of Israel. The Red Sea consumes the sons of Egypt. But there's more than just these two events. In between, we see that there is the misery and life-destroying reality of Israel's bondage. But there's also the deadly plagues. There's the death of the Egyptian livestock. There's the plague of deadly hail. There's famine-inducing locusts. And finally, there's the death of the firstborn sons. So we, we see in between these book bookends that there's just death associated with this place. But the Bible also makes another connection that helps us understand Egypt as a type of watery grave. In ancient times, the sea was associated or understood as a place of chaos and disorder and death. This chaos was an enemy to God's created order. And so Israel, like her neighbors, poetically personified the sea, this realm of of chaos and death as a dragon or a sea serpent. So if the sea was a place of evil, chaos, disorder, and death, that evil, chaos, disorder, and death had a picture, it had a face, the face of a giant sea serpent. Now that might sound strange to you, but we've got evidence of that in Psalm 74. The psalmist speaks of God showing his power by subduing the seas in the work of creation. And there he describes the seas poetically as a dragon or a beast called leviathan psalm 74 says you god divided the sea by your might you broke the heads of the sea monsters or dragon is the word on the waters you crushed the heads of leviathan you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness job 26 also picks up similar language describing the leviathan or beast only this time job refers to it as, uh, with a name he calls this beast rahab By God's power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So if the sea characterized chaos and disorder, the poetic sea serpent or dragon came to characterize the essence of or the heart of rebellion against God and his created order. And elsewhere, the Bible picks up this language, this sea serpent language, and it depicts Pharaoh as a dragon or a sea serpent. So in Ezekiel 29, verse 3, Pharaoh is depicted as this monstrous, slithery, dragon-like creature that's, that's soaking in the Nile River. Or in Isaiah 51, 9, a clear reference to this Exodus story, Pharaoh is described as Rahab, the sea serpent. Now, the Bible describes Pharaoh as this dragon or this uh, sort of figurative sea serpent figure because it wants us to see Pharaoh as representing chaos and death and opposition to God. And so if Pharaoh is is depicted as this sea serpent-like creature, his kingdom should be understood as that sea serpent's deathly, watery realm. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that Pharaoh and Egypt weren't historical realities, they were, but by understanding that these historical realities have a symbolic uh, significance bigger than their historical reality, we're helped to understand what this story is all about. And even more importantly, we're helped to understand our place in the story. By understanding that Pharaoh and Egypt are symbolizing this disorder, this death, this rebellion against God. We're supposed to understand that the slavery and death that Israel were experiencing in Egypt, they're representative of a bigger problem, a problem that we all face. Now, the linked conditions of slavery and death, if we read our Bibles with our New Testament, uh, these are the condition of every man, woman, and child by nature. By this, the Bible's not talking about material slavery, of course, but of a spiritual slavery, a, a spiritual slavery that is nonetheless very real and very powerful. Jesus says in John 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul picks up the same idea he's, in Romans 6. He says that we're slaves to the one we obey, whether that be sin or whether that be righteousness. And we understand this in terms of our our experience, right? There are certain things that we might know to be wrong, but we cannot stop ourselves, right? We have an uncontrollable anger, which just means that our anger controls us. We're addicted to time-wasting devices that uh, fuel our discontent and distract us from more important things. We serve the, the beck and call of addictions to pornography and food and drink. We're dominated by desires to be thought attractive or knowledgeable or funny or in control or cool by other people and our hearts are chained to to these desires that we cannot be happy. We cannot experience life without them. These disordered desires of the heart, if we're honest, have incredible power. And so it's fitting that the Bible speaks of this as slavery, as bondage. And the wages of this slavery, says Paul, is death. So knowing then that Israel's bondage is to be understood by us as being more than than just about physical slavery and physical deliverance, but a slavery that runs much deeper, a slavery that we understand all too well, as we understand that, we want to pay attention to this story and see what happens. And so we read that God had led his people out into the wilderness. He then lures Pharaoh out into the wilderness because he thinks that the, the people are wandering around aimlessly, but God says, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to glorify myself in the defeat of Pharaoh. I want you to forget what you know about this story for a moment and just think of the tension of that moment. So God leads Israel out into the wilderness and they're seemingly trapped. And Pharaoh is pursuing them. He's pursuing them. He's pursuing them. Three times that's mentioned in our text. We're supposed to feel like the chase is on. And as Pharaoh is, is closing in, we're to hear the thousands of, of horses, the brass chariot wheels uh, uh, cutting across the sand. Imagine yourself in, in Israel's camp as the ripples of fear uh, go through uh, from, from family to family and clan to clan. Israel had, had left. Egypt defiantly, they had plundered the Egyptians of their gold and and their their silver. The, The yoke of slavery had been thrown off. And suddenly this dizzying euphoria of being emancipated has just given way to panic. And as daylight fades, the people of Israel find themselves hemmed in by death. They've got the sea in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army behind them. And fearing for their lives, they cry out, first to God and then to Moses. And their cry to Moses goes something like this, What have we done? What have you done? Why have you let us out here? Here's Israel, God's people, slaves and subjects in this land of death. Now they're hemmed in by every side and they're starting to panic. So where were God's people? They were living in the land of death death and slavery second question where were god's people going well god was taking his people from the land of slavery and death into the promised land and into his life-giving presence we go back to exodus 6 god speaks to moses and there he declares his intention to free israel from slavery in egypt but he's talking his promise there is about more than just saying you're not going to have to make bricks in egypt anymore What he says to Israel is that he will deliver Israel and he will take Israel to be his people. And he says, I will be your God. And he says even more, he says, I will bring you into the land that I I promised to give to your forefathers. Now here's something that's important for us to understand in the book of Exodus. The Exodus was not primarily about a liberation from something. It was about a liberation for something. The Exodus wasn't merely about freedom from slavery or or oppression, though it was about that, and it's true. But even more so, it was about God freeing his people from slavery so that they could be free to enter into his life-giving presence and worship him. Moses... When he approaches Pharaoh as God's spokesperson, you might remember, he commands Pharaoh, let God's people go. Why? So that Israel might go out and they might serve the Lord at Mount Sinai. This command wasn't because God wasn't in Egypt. I mean, God is everywhere. But it was because God had promised to meet his people in a special way, first as he gathered them at the mountain, and then as he led them into the promised land. If you continue to read the book of Exodus, you see that God gathers his people there at the mountain, and then the very last chapter, there's this dramatic scene where God's visible glory fills the the middle of of God's people, the tent of of the the, the tabernacle. So there is, is God dwelling with his people. That is what God was freeing his people for It's a movement from death-reaping servitude to Pharaoh to life-giving service in the presence of God. And if you're hearing that as a Christian, you should immediately think, that sounds familiar, right? Because it is. Salvation, according to the New Testament, involves a getting out of the realm of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom governed by God's Son. That's Colossians 1. We're brought from death to life. And in this kingdom transfer that happens, God breaks the power that he said enslaves us, the power of sin, and he brings his people into a kingdom where we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're now able to serve righteousness. This means now that we, we possess a, a power, an ability to say no to sin and yes to God. We're no longer slave, enslaved to the old desires for control or approval or material pleasure or security but we're given new desires from God I don't have to entertain the bitter thought but I'm free to entertain a contented one right there's now something at work in me that says I don't have to lash out in anger at my kids or the addiction that previously enslaved me though it it may still be powerful and the road to full deliverance might be long and winding, that's no longer my master. This freedom doesn't mean that we never sin, but it means that when we do, it's at odds with our new status as people who have been rescued, set free from sin. So when we sin, it's an inconsistency. It's a sign of a sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome. We're thinking too fondly of our captors, forgetting who they are and what they've done. For a Christian, when we return to sin, it's not who we are, nor is it who we will one day be. So, so though this kingdom transfer has happened, and we've been set uh, free from slavery to sin now, and we've got God's presence who comes to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit now, the Bible tells us. Yet, as Christians, we understand that what God has liberated us for is not yet fully realized. We understand that in part, but not fully. One day we will. Revelation 21 speaks of the day in which God will fully realize that expectation that he will dwell in the midst of his people, will enjoy his his visible glory, his presence, and all the blessings that come from that as we stand before him perfected. So that's where God is is taking us as his people. He's taking Israel to to Sinai and then to the Promised Land. He's taking us to this, this, this Mount Zion, this deliverance. But the question is, how do these dots connect? We've considered Israel's slavery and ours. Their slavery in Egypt is a picture of our slavery to sin and death. And we've considered Israel's destination and and ours. God intends to bring them out of slavery, to dwell with them at Sinai and then in the Promised Land. God intends to do something similar for us. He brings us uh, out of sin. He he dwells with us in the church. And one day he'll, he'll dwell with us in the new heavens and the new earth. So maybe if we can oversimplify it, we've got de- death and slavery over here on the one hand, and on the other hand, we've got life-giving service in God's presence. And so the question is, how do you move from here to here? How do we cross over from death to life? And as we consider how this question applies to us here today, another way of putting this question for us Is how do you become a Christian? If if this kingdom transfer is what it means to be a Christian, how does that take place? And here's the answer. That God delivers us from our enemies and he brings us into his presence by bringing us through the waters of death by the hand of his chosen servant. For the Israelites, God does this by commanding his servant Moses to lift up his staff. And God then uses this powerful wind so that there's a high wall of water on their left and a high wall of water on their right and there's this dry path for the people of Israel to walk through and you can imagine this would have been a surprising event for Israel right in their minds remember the sea is dangerous it's dark it's deadly it's death it's a place of frightful destruction it's a dead end it's not the way of rescue and yet contrary to every expectation God powerfully miraculously opens up a way through the water now let's be clear what was going to happen was not done because Israel deserved it at the first sign of trouble right Israel's crying out already oh we wish we were back in Egypt right these were fickle doubting double-minded people And yet, even as as Moses bears God's reproach against the people for their grumbling in verse 15, God speaks a word of deliverance through Moses. He announces that salvation is at hand. He says, tell the people, go forward, pass through the sea on dry ground. I will get glory over Pharaoh. They will know that I'm the Lord. God intends to deliver his people from bondage by his hand and his hand alone. He doesn't tell Israel, okay, gear up to fight. Strap them on, boys. Right? Quite the contrary. Three times in the story, God emphasizes he and he alone will get glory over Pharaoh and his armies. And like a man of war, the Lord goes out to fight for his people. Reminds me of the scene from The Lord of the Rings, the mines of Moria, the motley crew, the hobbits, elf, dwarf, wizard, They're passing through this dark tomb-like mine and they encounter their Balrog, this fearsome monster of the deep. And Gandalf sends his friends across Durin's bridge. He will fight the Balrog. You shall not pass. And his friends only need to cross over the bridge behind him to safety. Well, in a similar way, as Israel crosses through the sea, through the dark of night, God himself takes on the dragon-like, serpent-like forces of Pharaoh in the graves of the Red Sea. When Israel was out of harm's way, God removes the the fiery wall that he had set up to to block the Egyptian armies from Israel, and the Egyptians chase after the people. They go into the water, and in the middle of the sea, God causes their chariots to, to bog down. He uh, casts a sense of confusion upon them, and they realize, oh no, the Lord of Israel fights against us, just as God said they would realize. And as dawn breaks and the sun starts to come up, God commands Moses, stretch out your hand, and he causes the waters to come crashing down on the Egyptians. And having been safely brought through the waters, the multitudes of Israel, they stand on the shores of the banks of the Red Sea as these, the bodies of their enslavers, the bodies of their enemies, slowly wash up on the shore. So how does Israel move from slavery to salvation? How does God move his people from slavery to salvation? Well, he moves them through the waters of death under the leadership of his chosen servant. This is the way of deliverance for Israel. This movement from slavery to death, uh, into blessing and the presence of God, it could not be received any other way but by passing through this watery grave under the leadership of God's chosen servant. And that's exactly how God delivers us. Here we are in bondage to sin, oppressed by Satan, under a sentence of eternal death. And God's promise is to free us from sin, save us from death, bring us into his presence. And how does he do this? He does it through another, a greater Exodus led by a greater Moses. It's an exodus that's explained for us in the New Testament. In Luke 9, Jesus is with Peter, James, and John. He's on a mountain. He's praying with them, and suddenly Jesus is transfigured. He's gloriously uh, transformed, and suddenly Elijah and Moses, these Old Testament prophets, they appear there, and they're talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us that Jesus was talking to them about his departure. It's the Greek word for exodus. Which, Jesus said, was about, he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. See, Jesus wants us to understand his death as an exodus, as the exodus of which the Red Sea crossing was only a blueprint. Opposed by the forces of death, Jesus goes down into death like Israel descending into the water. In his death, he strikes the decisive blow against Satan, that great serpent, And then on Easter morning at the break of day, he ascends uh, from the realm of the dead to return to the presence of his Father. But just as the Exodus was a pattern of Jesus' anticipated experience, Jesus' Exodus is a pattern of your experience and mine if we're Christian's. Paul makes this point in Romans 6, a passage I've referred to a couple times already, that to be a Christian is to be someone who has been united to Jesus by faith so that we have participated in his exodus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Paul makes this point more explicit in Colossians 2. Speaking of those who uh, have been joined to Jesus by faith, Paul says that in Christ's death, we've been buried with him and we've been raised with him from the dead. And that in the exodus of his death and resurrection and in our participation in that with him, Paul says that Christ has triumphed over the powers that had formerly held us captive. Fighting for us, he has conquered Satan, sin, and even the last enemy, death. And in the dark night of Good Friday, we died with Christ in order that we might rise with Christ at the dawn of Easter morning. Having participated in his exodus, we've been freed from slavery to sin so that we might live with God and live for God, that we might enjoy his blessed presence forever. And so, all this brings us to our last question How should participants in such a great deliverance respond? Well, look at verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians with the result that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now as shocking as it would have been to suddenly see all these bodies wash up on on the shores of the sea, Israel's fear was not purely a matter of being afraid. All we need to do is read the celebratory song that, that, that takes place in the next chapter to see that fear needs to be, mean something more than just being terrified. Instead, fear, as it's used elsewhere in scripture, is used here to describe a trembling delight in God's goodness to his people at delivering them and defeating his enemies. It's that, 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 trembling, right? Like my son on Christmas morning when he sees the presents under the tree. He's just filled with this deep experience of of wonder and goodness. Calvin says of this passage that fear here not only describes being gripped by a deep reverence for God, but a moving apprehension of God's sweet and delightful goodness to his people. And this helps us understand why, why Exodus moves so quickly from fear to belief. It doesn't see these two things at odds. Because the people's hearts were suddenly apprehended by the sweetness of what God had done for them. And so they realized that he was worthy of their trust. He was worthy to be believed upon. God had flexed his power to slay the serpent, to slay the enslaver, to bring them into life so that they could see that they could trust him and his servant. Now, if you're a Christian here today, is this not your testimony Maybe you can't point to a moment where uh, you knew you were converted or the moment you came to a saving faith in Christ. But did you not see that in the person of Christ Jesus, we, God was offering miserable sinners like you and I, he was offering us a goodness that we didn't deserve. Were you not drawn by wonder when you saw that in Christ Jesus God had made a way for you to be freed from sin, rescued from death, delivered from the evil one? Did you not look to the cross and look to the empty tomb? Maybe as the the preacher was preaching or as you were reading your Bible or, or, or having this conversation with a friend, did you not look there and perceive the salvation that God had worked for sinners through his chosen mediator? And tremble to realize that here, he was an object worthy of your trust. Now maybe you're thinking, yeah, you know, I think probably sometime I I did think that. Way back when, I mean, surely I must have. Sounds familiar. Friend, if that's you, it may be that you have saving faith. And yet, since we're called to live daily, by faith in Christ and since faith springs out of a heart that is captured by this trembling fear, this trembling excitement and delight in Christ. Come, stand on the shores as it were and see the deliverance of your God. Today, come back to the pages of your Bible. See the salvation of God afresh and have your faith strengthened. See how Christ, your mediator, tasted death for you how he saw fit to to lead you from death to glory by his own suffering, that he might be the captain of your salvation. See how through not only his own death, but from his rising from the dead, he has destroyed him who has the power of death, the devil. See how he has done this for you, you who were subject to bondage and death, that you might be delivered and ransomed and redeemed unto God. God. See the salvation of your God in his chosen servant, his son, our Lord Jesus. See, tremble, believe. Very briefly, let me close with a word. Perhaps there are some of you here this morning who are not Christians. Here's the good news. That Christ is still leading people in this great exodus today. He is still bringing people out of bondage and slavery to death today. There are many today who will be let out. He stands. All you need to do is come. You might have questions. You might have doubts. You might have fears. Certainly the Israelites had them as they were walking through the waters. But he stands at the door as it were. He stands with the waters parted. And he invites you. He beckons you. He pleads with you. Come. Come. Here is one who has worked a salvation for you to be set free from sin, free from death. Come, see, tremble, and know he is worthy to be believed on. Amen. Amen. Oh God, we thank you that you have worked so marvelously a salvation for sinners like us. And we thank you for stories like the Exodus, this great deliverance where we see the pattern of our salvation. And for those of us who have passed through the waters with Christ Jesus, our hearts sing. They are thrilled to see this is our story. Here is the captain of our salvation. Here is the one who has led us through. Here is the deliverance that is ours today. And we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to see ever more clearly that we might grow in faith, grow in love. And Lord, I pray for those who have not yet trusted in Christ that you would enable them by your spirit to do so, that they too might pass from death to life and enjoy your presence forever. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I ask that you please stand with me. We're gonna sing our closing song. Come ye faithful, raise the strain. It's an older uh, song and um, yet it connects Christ's resurrection with this great Exodus event.